Hello and welcome to Technocast, a podcast series showcasing research from across the arts and humanities. Just a quick note before we get into this week's episode. Ordinarily, we release an episode alongside a Techno Congress. Since this summer's Congress has been postponed, please instead keep an eye out for our upcoming episode where we'll be talking about the state of the arts and humanities in the UK. This week, we're diving into the final episode of our life writing theme with our guest, Al Meggs. Al is doing a creative writing PhD on reclaiming cabaret, bringing together his own experiences in a cabaret company in Italy in the 1980s and the origins of modern cabaret in Paris. I'll leave you to enjoy Al's paper now and I'll be back later to chat with Al more about his work and life. In the 1970s and 1980s, many British dancers, including myself and my peers, worked abroad, taking performing jobs as a means of acquiring an equity card for work security and a regular wage, and or to see the world. After intensive exploration for my creative writing MA dissertation in 2019, I found no documented accounts of this period and approached the stage, equity, Dancing Times, the National Resource Centre for Dance and UNESCO's International Dance Council to inquire about existing records or archives. Responses were unanimously negative. The stage replied that, even though the back pages of the paper had for many years carried adverts for jobs abroad on a weekly basis, no documentation had been kept when the paper went digital. The National Resource Centre for Dance said it was an area of recent dance history they had not even considered. However, they did not think the area of research fitted in with their potential audiences. And the Dancing Times told me they had no archives relating to dancers working in cabaret in Europe and could not think of any archive in the UK that might have material on the subject. These replies told me something had to be done or our undocumented lives and the styles of choreography no longer performed would be lost forever. When it comes to knowledge of the dance world, the spotlight stays on famous dancers and choreographers. Sometimes, if a book is published by someone unknown, it is within a recognised genre, like Elizabeth Dale Phillips's memoir of touring Italian theatres with the Folie Bergère, or Isabel Taylor's diaries of working for various ballet companies in Germany and Scandinavia. No one has exposed the cockroach-infested, mafia-run, stripper-abundant world of the cabaret nightclubs of Europe. Until the mid-1980s, the British Actors' Equity Association was a closed shop union. Forty weeks' work had to be completed in order to attain full membership and audition and perform in West End shows or on TV and film. It was a catch-22 situation. You had to have full membership to work, but you couldn't work unless you had full membership. As already mentioned, open auditions for dancing jobs overseas were advertised in the back pages of the stage, and most of these jobs had equity-approved contracts. After the death of General Franco, Spain opened large dinner and show nightclubs in commercial holiday resorts, where tourists were bussed in for a set meal and entertainment that consisted of a standard tits and feathers show sandwiched around a flamenco show, and interspersed with a mix of variety acts like jugglers, magicians, acrobats and contortionists. These contracts ran from early March to the end of September, so dancers would return to the UK needing only a further few weeks to attain their full union membership having spent the summer living it up on the Costa del Wherever. Elsewhere in Europe, mainly Italy, Switzerland, Greece, Turkey and also the Middle East, small independent dance shows were doing the rounds of nightclubs and five-star hotels. Most of these contracts were open-ended, starting with a three-month probation period. 
Some people lasted the required time or less and headed back to the UK, unable to deal with life away from home into company politics, especially if the choreographer didn't look after or respect the dancers. Uninspired choreography, the dilapidated state of the hotels, or the squalor and blatant prostitution of the clubs themselves. Often, dancers were required to sit and drink with clientele once they had finished the show, and it was accepted by some choreographers and club owners that if a client and dancer got on well, then no one was going to bat an eyelid if they went off together. I was fortunate. I worked for a choreographer whose non-conformist approach to traditional cabaret dance shows set us apart from the usual tits and teeth productions, as he choreographed some of the toughest work I performed during my life as a dancer. He also laid out strict rules for behaviour within the company and its public face, which included no socialising with anyone associated with the clubs, including the punters. The costumes were, like most shows of the time, predominantly lycra-based, fitted, revealing, but not overtly sexual, and shoes were hardly worn. The show itself was around 45 to 50 minutes long, and we rehearsed at least three times a week, ensuring each number was as tight and slick as it could be. The music varied from known songs like Randy Crawford's Street Life, Peggy Lee's Fever or George Benson's On Broadway, alongside musicals like Hair, Tommy and Chicago, to the more unfamiliar work of the Alan Parsons Project, Genesis or Led Zeppelin. My initial three-month contract turned into five years as I made my place within the company, eventually becoming assistant choreographer, dance captain and manager. Although we were mainly based in Italy, the opportunity to travel to other countries also occurred, along with some interesting adventures. We worked in the Athens Hilton Hotel in February 1981, where we experienced a series of earthquakes, the first one registering 6.7 on the Richter scale, and happened as we were about to start the show in the rooftop club. We filed down the stairs and spent several late night, early morning hours standing on the street in the cold in our very fitted lycra opening costumes and whatever items of daywear or rehearsal gear we had grabbed on our way out before being allowed back into the hotel. In 1982, I worked in the Moulin Rouge in Baghdad, three months during the Iraq-Iran war where we were bombed twice. We were to be paid 50% in Iraqi dinar and 50% in American dollars, all cash, but when we came to leave, the club owner reneged on the contract, telling us all foreign currency was being allocated to the war. He gave us 10% in dollars, and we changed the rest on the black market, arriving at Baghdad Airport with pockets, socks, wallets and bags filled with sterling American dollars, Swiss francs and countersigned sterling travellers checks that we had exchanged with people we'd met whilst there. Even in this war-torn country, road, Bridge and building construction continued and many Europeans were contracted in and we made friends with people working for companies like John Lang Construction and the Italian tyre company Pirelli. These men advised us to keep a bag packed with essentials and passports under our beds so if fighting escalated they would collect us and drive us into neighbouring Jordan and safety. So how did I get here from there? I met Dr Jess Moriarty in 2016. It was a chance meeting after a chance conversation whilst working backstage at the Brighton Dome on the University of Brighton graduation ceremonies. I was not supposed to be working on the ceremonies but had been asked to step in at the 11th hour in case someone who wasn't feeling well had to leave. If they left I took over the live technical aspect of the ceremony. Whilst talking to the University of Brighton events manager one day as we waited for people to be ready I mentioned I might, perhaps, maybe, one day, write something about my life in Italy and the people, places and adventures that went with it. 
Following the years abroad, some of my co-workers and friends wondered if I was the one to write it all down, to recall this world we inhabited. I was also fascinated about the origins of the modern cabaret in Paris at the end of the 1800s, and said I'd like to, perhaps, maybe, one day, look into some of that too and write stories that focused on some of the lesser-known people and places that were instrumental in shaping the face of the genre at the time, like Emile Goudot, Les Hydropathes and Le Chat Noir, the Clones Chaucao and the Grand Fater Le Petomaine. The following morning, after a swift, unprepared elevator pitch, Jess, running late, looked into the distance and said, I think there's a PhD in here somewhere. Find my email address on the university website and send me some words. Let's talk. The very idea of a leap from two O-levels in 1978 to a PhD in the 21st century seemed impossible and, well, quite frankly, ridiculous. Almost two years later, after several meetings and a lot of encouragement from Jess, I secured a place in the Creative Writing MA course at Brighton University and graduated in February 2020, just weeks before lockdown. I took time out to decide whether I really wanted to take the final step and start the doctorate, but as COVID-induced boredom set in, I reached for my diaries and the many envelopes and photographs I'd taken, and wrote as much as I could remember, starting from when I flew out to Italy at the end of September 1980, and finishing some 152,000 words later, at the beginning of January 1986, shortly before we left for Spain to start a live TV series called Directo en la Noche. What began as two separate projects, the telling of my life in Italy and the relaying of what I considered to be interesting features concerning people and places in Paris at the end of the 19th century, amalgamated when I wrote a fictional story about meeting and dancing with some of the most famous can-can dancers in the Moulin Rouge in the 1890s, people immortalised in the art of Toulouse-Lautrec. I realised I could use magical realism to weave researched fictional stories in with my lived experience, therefore keeping myself centre of the narrative. Like Gil Pender, the main protagonist in Woody Allen's film Midnight in Paris, who shifts between his life in the 21st century and a magically real life in the Parisian jazz scene of the 1920s. Unsuccessful in my application for funding, I decided to go it alone and self-fund, and, having been interviewed and accepted into the University of Brighton Doctoral College, I began my PhD proper in October 2021. My creative practice thesis, Reclaiming Cabaret, a queer, haunted autoethnography of real, researched and imagined stories of cabaret past and present, is in two parts. The creative element, Blonde Angel, is an autoethnographic novel of my life in Italy that takes in not just my lived experience, but also insight into a group of British dancers working the cabaret nightclubs of Europe in the 1980s. I use my insider information, my lived experience, to recount the lives, trials, highs and lows of a nomadic existence in a foreign country. I can also distance myself to observe the relationships and social dances of strangers thrown together in a foreign land, and how interaction and rejection affects the microcosm of touring life. The novel also stories people and places from the origins of the modern cabaret in late 1800s Paris and brings the past and present together in a magically real space where real, researched and imagined lives meet, haunt and interact with my lived experience. The critical element focuses on a new approach to autoethnographic and academic writing that takes components of storytelling, that of setting, theme, plot and characters, and adds the academic specifics of method, methodology, theory, citations, references and footnotes to produce a narrative that is both academically rigorous yet understood and accessible beyond the dry, dusty, heteronormative halls of learning. 
At 61, I am incredibly fortunate to get the opportunity to tell my story and represent the disremembered lives of many British dancers who worked the cabaret and nightclubs of Europe in the 1970s and 80s. I will continue to establish an archive of dancer oral histories and the collation of memorabilia after my thesis has been submitted and defended. Further research intentions include an exploration into the impact of isolation on gay male dancers in the touring companies of Europe. Most groups comprised of five or six female dancers and one male. Many of these single male dancers were gay, living and working in heterosexual, often sex-orientated environments. Even after work or on nights off, dancers would go to straight discos, so the opportunity to meet other gay men was limited. My fortune continues with the chance to evolve academic and autoethnographic work with the creation of a new approach to academic and scholarly writing that values and captures lived, researched, imagined experiences and queers and challenges the heteronormative patriarchal discourse of conventional academic narratives, a voice from the margins that is so desperately needed in the current climate of education cuts across the arts and humanities. As always, my eternal gratitude to Hugh Buchanan-Jones for introducing me to the astonishing Jess Moriarty, who listens to and constantly encourages and challenges the blatherings of a sometimes over-enthusiastic dancer. The woman who had the foresight to recommend Kate Autoson to be the other incredibly supportive voice in my supervisory team. Hey Al, how are you doing today? Hi Olivia, yeah I'm good thank you. I'm loving this weather. I have to say, I see, keep seeing things on kind of social media going, oh my God, it's so hot. It's like, no, give me the heat any day of the week. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. We'll get into the questions. We'll just get started because I know sure. we've got a lot yeah. to speak about. To start with, I just wanted to ask you what performing cabaret felt like for you, whether that was emotionally, physically, as an individual, as part of the company or all of all of the above. And kind of tagged on to that question I'm really interested in why you ended up staying in the company you were part of for so long so how did an initial three-month contract turn into turn into five years actually it turned into six years six years but no because the final year of working for the same choreography we were choreographer we were in Spain doing a tv series so there is, and that's just kind of it's a completely different ball game it's it's um it's a different time it was a different feel um I, I i suppose one day i'll get round to writing that as well but so for the moment it purely <laughs> i focus on the cabaret that we did in italy it's a bit of a mixture of everything really uh, i i was very lucky in that i was working in a small group in london and one of the dancers was going back out to work for the same choreographer and he was lacking a male dancer so she put me forward for the job mm. and it was I don't even think it was a phone call it was more a case of yeah grab yourself a flight and come out and join us type thing um so uh and I was very much of the uh, the opinion that well you know I'd go out there do three months um learn a different style of choreography mm. possibly learn one or two words in another language <laughs> see a bit of Italy you know having never left the country so and that was sort of it um and it it is everything it was i i loved working in small intimate spaces i think it was much more i i i, I there was just something about it i got the closeness of the audience the you know um the reaction you could see more than you could on a stage i theater although having spent my life in theater there is something quite often 
disconnected about it. You're working primarily behind a proscenium arch. There is that fourth wall. There is, you know, it's more structured. It is more conventional. And I like the um, the unconventionality of cabaret. I like the fact that sort of on the margins of what established entertainment's all about. You know, and I like that. I like. I've never sort of really fitted in with what's been expected. Um, it, you know, it has had sort of a, a counter side to it in going into theatre and you know, in, mm. doing really natural makeup where I want to throw like seventeen inches of slap over my face and <laughs> cover myself with glitter and all the rest of it. Like, no, 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 just a little bit of eyeliner and you're fine. <laughs> no, I need this mask. Um, so um. And I think that was part of the reason why I stayed so long. We, for starters, we, we were lucky. There was a lot of small little groups going around. And a lot of the choreography was quite bland. It was conventional. I think quite often when one thinks of a cabaret dance group, it's tits and feathers, you know, it's kind of teeth, um, flesh fishnets, silver sandals, you know, massive, huge plumes strapped to your back, that sort of thing. And we were the opposite of that, where... Each number that was set had a real, well, not each number, but a lot of it had quite an aggression to it. We just didn't conform. The choreographer pushed boundaries of what was going on. It was the toughest work, well, some of the toughest work I ever did in my career as a dancer. Um, mm. And he would push us to extremes, you know, emotionally and physically. I remember rehearsing one show, we were actually rehearsing it in London, and we got to Leicester Square Station on day three of rehearsals. And we rode the escalator up and actually got to the steps out. And we were holding on to the rails, screaming, <laughs> like every muscle hurt. And all those muscles that you never even realised hurt. So like your intercostal muscles, were kind of, you know, like how can they hurt? How can, how can <laughs> the tendons on my head hurt? You know, being given that challenge uh, was a plate to step up to push us emotionally as well he discovered that I was quite happy to go to some of the darker areas in my mind so the day he sat me down and said uh, he wanted to set a number with me and a, a duet me and a girl and a chair and um, you know kind of forget any sort of Bob Fosse Liza Minnelli cabaret sort of chair I broke chairs At the end of the last minute or so of the number I was in a straight jacket there was a straight jacket kind of concealed underneath my jacket, the jacket would come out, these sleeves would extend, and I would be tied into this straight jacket. So there was very much that kind of there was there was yeah. a real sort of anger and angst behind it. He took us to these extreme places and then would pull us back, but allowed us that freedom. So um, yeah, but that particular number was just it was just one constant bruise, you know, when you're kind of lying <laughs> over the back of the chair. And he says, "Hey, right, I want you to go from there, hit the deck in one count." You know, well, what part of me am I not going to bruise now? <laughs> Um, I think there's also an, um, there's ego in that as well, in that being the only male dancer, you're going to have things choreographed around you. Yeah. You know, you're not part of an ensemble. This is this is your pigeon. It's you know, it's your moment to shine. So therefore, yeah, there's, you know, there's kind of there's an amount of ego with that as well. We flew out. I flew out at the end of September eighty. And so the three months would have brought us up to the end of December. And at the time, we were, we flew out to Amman in Jordan in the middle of December that year. So it would have meant I would have had to have left the company then to come back, and and, and which wasn't feasible really. So you know, they asked me if I'd stay on that bit longer. I did leave one, two, three times. 
we all left. Working in such an intimate environment, English-speaking performers, six or seven English-speaking performers, in another country. So therefore, that family, that nucleus becomes really tight. And so it's very emotive and explosive. Because you know, you're working with people you've never met before. And so one minute you can love them, the next minute you can really hate them. I'm going to take for an example then the July of 1981, which was when I flew out for the second time. I'd left in May. Three weeks later, got a phone call saying, hey, you don't want to come back out, do you? It's like, yes, drop the phone, pack my bags, <laughs> And the whole of July was just idyllic. You know, we kind of hear the choreographer was setting new work. It was hot. You know, we were in Alessandria for 15 days, lying by the pool every morning before going into rehearsals. Then we went down to a little town on the West Coast called Viareggio, which was kind of everybody uh, wanted to work there. Mm. It was the place. The club was right on the beach. So you'd literally walk out the back entrance of the club jump the wall and run down the sand into the sea. It was idyllic. Um, and then we went to a little town up kind of about an hour or so north of Venice called Spilimbergo. And within 10 days, because it was a small town, there was, you know, nothing else to do. We were all kind of chafing a bit to leave. We were having meetings going, we hate this, we want to go. Yeah, so there was this roller coaster of emotion the whole time. Within a few weeks, we realised that actually all we needed was a break from it. We'd be on the phone going, what a new job's going. And, you know, or you'd get a phone call saying, you're an idiot, get the next flight out. And um, like, yeah, okay. Hence, I stayed so long. They were family. Yeah. yeah. Are you still in Are you still in touch with, with them? Some. Or, yeah. Yeah. Some. <laughs> it's, yeah. Some four, by the way. Some you kind of finish working with and think, oh, never want to see you again. Um, but there are sort of four of us. Mm. that have always stayed in touch and we might not speak for years you know, literally you might not speak to one or the other for like two or three years and you'll they'll pick up the phone and you'll just go oh my god hello yeah 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 and it's like it's never been lost but look also we created our own language we spoke predominantly english we would throw italian words in there you know so there were various words that were never said in english that just became part of our vernacular. And the choreographer was Egyptian. So we also learned various words in Arabic and they came became part of it as well. So there was this complete mishmash. And, and I was interviewing one of the women I worked with and it just made me smile because every now and again, this, you know, there'd be an Italian word just dropped into the conversation. And there was no kind of pretense about it or it was just a mm. natural part of who we were and, and how we spoke. So, uh, yeah, there are several that I am still in touch with. I think that's incredible as well, that after, God, over 40 years, there's still these amazing links with people that just never, never drop. That's incredible. What a time, what a life. And actually the woman that uh, put me up for the job is still one of my closest friends. She's like my big sister. We're thick as thieves. We're kind of, you know, we're as mischievous and and there's somebody else <laughs> in that as well we just kind of irreverent and non-conforming and and we always will be but but that is that those links those yeah. emotional bonds that are there that kind of got us through that are still you know and that kind of leads on to my next question really because in your paper you were talking about your co-workers and friends wondering if you were the one to write these experiences down before they all kind of end up getting lost how yeah. do you feel because I was 
I was listening to that and I was wondering, how do you feel about being the person to take this on? As a word I really hate, but I'm going to have to use, honoured, because I think yeah. it's it's just used far too much and in the wrong places. But And I don't know whether anybody else did, but I kept diaries. Um, and sometimes these diaries are just the town, the club, the hotel and not a lot else. But within that, that will take me back to, especially if it's a particular time of the year, like, so for instance, I don't know, February. So, you know, it's cold, you know, it's wet, you, you know, so it all that mm. kind of comes back with it. Um, I also I, I had a camera wherever we went. So I have envelopes of pictures. Every now and again, I'll get somebody will um, upload, go, oh, my God, I've just found these. Do you remember this happening? And you go, whoa, yeah, that was X, Y, and Z. And, you know, and that brings back more as well. There are a couple of voices. I've always been known by my surname. Everybody's always called me Megs or Megsy. So um, these voices that go, oh, Megsy, you're the one to write this. Write it for us. You know, sorry. A bit emotional on that one. Um, so, yeah, to actually be able to do this and be and to represent mm. this period in dance history that's just never been looked at. Yeah, you know, and you kind of go, "Whoa, we've got to smash this open. We've got to do something about it," uh, because hundreds of dancers did. I would love this sea of people to emerge once they hear what I've got to say and go, "That was me. I worked for so and so. That was you know, oh my god, I've got you know, I've and some of the the things that I've stupidly thrown away that you kind of go, oh, "I don't need that now. Get rid of it." That I wish I'd kept. But yeah, there's mm. something quite special about the fact that I can make us heard. You know, so, um, yeah, I'm quite happy to write it. What I'd also love is for somebody to read it and say, oh, you're talking out of your backside. That didn't happen. It was like this. I'd love to see all those different perspectives of the situations. One woman I worked with, we worked in Baghdad together. Now, I have a very specific memory of the flight into Baghdad, and I'd love to hear her version of it just to see how it differs or if it does differ. That would be fantastic if this is like the first step and then everyone else joins in and kind of starts to widen up the archives. And yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's really exciting. Dipping into something and exposing something that hasn't had a place in, in archives in history yet. We spend so much of our lives procrastinating. Yeah. Oh, we'll do that next week. We'll do you know, and suddenly it's, you kind of, you realise that mm. the voice you really want to hear has died. Yeah. You know, um, a couple of years ago, one of my friends died and, and we've, we have stories about her and we laugh about some of her antics. But to actually be able to have had that from the first person would have been fantastic. So it's there, there's that moment when you think if, it, if it's not written, it's gone. Yeah, I can't have that. I can't have that. I can't have the, the, the negating of it. So there has to be some recognition for what we did. For a lot of dancers, it was their way into getting their equity card and their way into um, a performing career within the UK. So, you know, let's acknowledge it. Let's just let's show the world what there was. And and also quite often the total ridiculousness of situation. Again, it's the sort of thing we look back on now and just laugh about it because, you know, did we did we really do that? Did we, you know, <laughs> how? And why? And, and and we're still alive to tell the tale. That's, that's the, you know, sort of the great thing about it is that we are still here to be able to tell what we're saying. How was it making that jump from two A-levels to an MA and then to a PhD? Because that seems... 
Oh, the word that springs to mind is ridiculous, really, isn't it? A little bit of background on it. I, I, when I finished my performing career, I stayed in theatre working backstage and whatnot and sort of did everything from being a stage crew to production manager and I worked a lot in wardrobe as well. And I was in a fairly dead-end job in London. And around the time of my 50th birthday, I announced that I was just going to throw in the towel. I was living in Brighton at the time and working in London. And my kitchen window, you could see this kind of two inches of sea. And I'd stand there and go, oh, look, there's the sea. I'll turn my back on it and I'll go to London to work. Walk across Waterloo Bridge and what, in that heat and, you know, and the kind of the anger of typical London day. And then I'd get back and it would be night. And the following day, I'd be like, oh, look, two inches of sea, but I'll go to London. Literally just announced one day I was going to leave. And in fact, I'd announced this to my mother and she'd drawn breath and I said no I'm coming down to see you in a couple of weeks let's just talk about it then I don't want to know your reaction I got down and what she always did was put a bar of green and black chocolate on the pillow in the spare room and with this was a little letter that said what do you want to be saying in 10 years do you want to say I stayed in this job. It was secure. I got a good wage. I had some good holidays, but meh. I left. I lost everything. I ended up moving back in with my mother. This She kind of did this list and was like, actually, yeah, what do I want to be saying in 10 years? So I left, literally just kind of went, I'm going goodbye and got a job working at the Dome in Brighton. Backstage, casual, part-time, whenever. At the time, the both the University of Sussex and the University of Brighton graduation ceremonies happened at the Dome. As part of the tech team, if you drew the short straw, you went to work on them, okay? And during one of these, I got approached by the Dome management saying, you've called shows, haven't you? In fact, you've kind of like done all the telling when the technical aspects need to happen. It's like, yeah, it's okay. The person that normally does that isn't very well. So can you just follow them? And if they have to go, would you take her? I was like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. So then the summer grads the same year, they decided that having me come in and doing that freed them up. And we were just sitting chatting one afternoon about things. And I said, yeah, I might one day, maybe, you know, write about my life in Italy. And I might one day, maybe write a bit about, you know, some of these interesting figures from Paris. And he said, well, I'll introduce you to Jess Moriarty, who's the head of creative writing. And I'm an old cynic, kind of like, all right, whatever, following morning. I'll next, Jess Moriarty, Jess Moriarty, I'll next. She looked at her watch and she said, I'm late. Two minutes, elevate, pitch your idea to me. So I bumbled through roughly what I said to you, really. And she stood there and she kind of looked into the distance. She said, I think there's a PhD in here somewhere. Find my email address on the university website. Drop me a line. Let's talk. Oh, and send me some words. This is what, I don't know, 2015, 2016. I'm thinking I left school in 1978. I got a B in English language and a C in music. Got an F for maths. He said proudly. <laughs> so I thought, that, I mean, this, this is absurd. I started exchanging emails and whatnot, and I met up with her a few times. And she kept saying, I you know, there's there's a PhD and there's something in this that, that obviously pulled her in within the four or five minutes I'd spoken or initially. So I just ran with it. And eventually looking, actually looking for a part-time job at the university, I thought, well, I might as well look and see what's on in the way of courses. And I found a creative writing course. So I emailed her and I said, is it worth me applying for this? Do you think this is a good stepping stone? And she said, yeah. And I said, but I don't have the qualification. I don't have A-levels. I don't have a BA. And she said, yeah, but you have life experience. 
what you have, what you can bring to the table is this wealth of knowledge of what life is like and the way you write. I said, oh, okay, well, uh, apply for it. So I applied for it and got it. And I did the MA in a year. So 40 years went back into full-time education and I was the only one to turn my work in physically. My dissertation went in as a physical thing. The whole premise of it was about reaching under the bed to um, get out a box of photos and postcards and what some of those might represent. Each story was individually bound with photos that kind of sat in with the words. It was presented in a box. I got this box and my partner looked at it and he said, you can't take it. That's just far too nice. If it's been under a bed, it'll be dusty and dirty. Maybe somebody might have trodden on it. So we trod on it. He came back in one day from being out doing something and he said, he went, what is that awful smell? You can see kind of like the blood drain, his face drop. And he suddenly went, you've put that box under the grill, haven't you? It's like, yeah, we, we I, 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 I kind of, I, I found some ribbons to tie it up with, but that looked too neat. So we rubbed dirt into that and flicked ink over it. So it was this complete physical thing. So it's like, yeah, I ran the extra mile for it. I did get one of the highest marks ever for it. I always love hearing how people come to their PhDs. Like I love, and that's one of the best stories I've heard, I think. When lockdown started, because Jess had said to me, okay, you're going on for it. And I was like, I don't, I need time. I, I can't think. Turned it in. I think it was the Friday it had to be in what I physically went into university and gave it to them. The following weekend, I went to bed on the Friday and I got up on the Monday. Literally, I slept. Bless my partner. Are you all right? Uh, do you want any food? No. Then when lockdown happened and I kind of, I got bored. So I thought, let's really start this. I did. And I got the diaries out and I got the photos out and whatnot. And I wrote 152,000 words, 80,000 words. Once I've edited it, hopefully down to 80,000, will take me up to January 19... No, I lie, March 1982. So that's basically, it's a year and a half. Because some chapters go on forever. Some are really short. You know, there might be a recollection that's just a four-line four stanza poem of something, but it just kind of, it shows that memory. It kind of, you know, it's it, that it's a ghost. And then others like... Again, like Baghdad just goes on for bloody ever. Milan, 1981, when we kind of went back there in 81, we got up to some insane mischief. You know, we had run-ins with the mafia. I had one night where we went to a restaurant after the show, okay? And our bill arrived and they'd overcharged us. So we kicked up a bit about the fuss and they returned our money. They returned too much money. The girl that was dealing with the bill went, Right, okay, we're not saying anything, just get out. Get out now, we'll sort the bill out when we get outside or we'll sort it tomorrow morning, back at the hotel or whatever, just get out now. So we did. We stood outside talking about it and this guy walked up to us and he said, I saw your show tonight, really enjoyed it. I've got a restaurant. Do any of you want to come back for some pasta? Read into that sentence. Come back for some pasta. Come back for drugs. So everybody went, oh, no, 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 apart from... Yvonne and myself, we were like, we'll have some more pasta. I actually indeed did own a restaurant, but there was a little amount of cocaine on the table. Okay, of course, of course. And there was various bottles of wine and various amounts of hash. So um, we got totally trashed. I mean, trashed. Yeah, I don't even remember how we got back to the hotel. We got back to the hotel at something like 9.30, 10 in the morning. It was definitely day Knowing that we had what we thought was a clean-up rehearsal the following afternoon, like, oh, we can... 
sail through that on a hangover and still coked off our faces, you know. So we woke up late, watched this rehearsal, started warming up. It was like, I'm warming up. I'm still off my face. And the choreographer walked in. Oh, what the fuck is he doing here? Um, Okay, right. I've decided I'm going to set a new number for the show. And uh, it's going to evolve around you, Megzi. I'm like, I can't learn steps today. I have a brain that's just full of cocaine, marijuana and red wine. And then you start sweating all that out as well, which is always a good sign. Mm. (laughs) So, yeah, it's, it's been it's an interesting journey, but actually sitting down and writing that amount. And some of it was really difficult to write. Difficult in the extent that so many emotions come flooding back, especially with the fun times more so than kind of some of the traumatic experiences, but actually that sense of camaraderie, that sense of unity. For anyone who might not know much about it, how would you explain what autoethnography is, both generally and then specifically related to your own work and research? Okay, I, I break the word down is the easiest way of telling it. So auto being the self, ethno from uh, the Greek ethnos, which means a people or a tribe or a, a community. Um, and the graphy, write, record, archive, notate some way of getting it down. So it becomes a methodology to write about a certain community from a lived perspective. So you become the researcher and the researched in it. Um, so say, for instance, if you were an ethnographer, you'd perhaps go and um study a certain culture community for a specific length of time come back and then write up about it so there's this third person distanced objective view um throwing auto in front of it means that you throw yourself right into the middle of the situation because you know it and because you, you you can safely say that you are part of this and you have first-hand experience of in this case what it's like to um work in some really seedy places, doing some really Mm -hmm. intense choreography. And sometimes autoethnography gets labelled as being self-indulgent and inward-looking and navel-gazing, and and it can look at um, sort of negative, depressing lived experiences, you know, such as death and disease and health problems, that sort of thing. Uh, So it becomes kind of... Well, it's been called trauma culture. And what I'm doing with my work is looking, it's flipping the coin on it and saying, yeah, there is this part, but there's also this amazing part of life called joy and fun. You know, so why not write from these perspectives? Why not go, this is what happened. And yes, okay, there were moments of being in the middle of an earthquake is kind of quite a traumatic event, but you know, finding the humour in that and saying, actually, you know, being stood on the street for several hours in a skimpy lycra costume and a pair of shoes and not a lot else, <laughs> there's actually humour in that. And so therefore, I think we need to look at that side of things. And somebody said recently, it's um, if, if autoethnography is meant to be therapeutic, which is often, you know, it's kind of its therapy work, then... Um, Laughter is often the best medicine. Basically, the overall look of it is that it is a, a personal way of writing something about a particular culture, community that little is known about. Let's talk about haunting 
and queerness because I'm so intrigued by and this kind of leads on from what we were saying about autoethnography but yeah. I'm so intrigued by how your creative practice is bringing together your own lived experiences and then imagine stories spanning across time and spaces when you're talking about research and imagine lives haunting and interacting with your own lived experiences is this using kind of hauntology as a methodology or is it some other kind of haunting queer haunting yeah it's a methodology uh Jacques Derrida who coined the phrase back in 1990 I want to say one in a book called Spectres of Marx yeah refers to it as a returning or persistence of elements from a cultural or social past in the manner of a ghost. I look at haunting in various different perspectives. For starters, I believe we we are haunted all our lives. Yep. Whether that be the things you wish you'd said in an argument yesterday. Yeah. That haunts us. Yeah. Um, or the things that you didn't do 20 years ago or, you know, the um, things that might have been. I, there's a, I think there's a big element of might have beens about it. I wrote a story not long ago, actually, but I had a, uh, an Italian boyfriend at one point. We were, I, I kind of, I finished the show. We, we, the, the, the show we were in disbanded. Mm. Um, and I came back to England and I wrote this story. Well, what happened if I hadn't? You know, the, the, the what if, what if this had happened? And uh uh, just kind of a very interesting spin on it, really. And there's haunting. There's also nostalgia. I think if you go looking for a memory, then it's it's a nostalgic remembrance. You know, the oh, do you remember yeah. when's type thing on life. And then the hauntings are those things that kind of sideline you. And quite often, that's that's a sensory experience, um, especially smell. I have, there's a particular aftershave I wear from the 90s. It's actually from the 1970s. There was a guy I was at college with who wore it. And I, again, I have this real thing. If somebody else wears something, I won't wear it. So if someone's wearing that aftershave, I won't. I can't be doing with that. And I bought a bottle of this. It was, um, again, going back to Italy in 81. And I bought a bottle at the airport. Fast forward several decades and I just kind of scrolling through something on Amazon saw a bottle of this and thought oh my god bought it and sprayed it and immediately was taken back to the hotel in Milan that I'd first use it and not back to college where somebody else was wearing but when I first started using it so I think those hauntings those things that come back at us they do they haunt you there's nothing that you go looking for I think yes. there's a I think there is a difference in this I think that you know when you look for something, you look for the memory, you look for the nostalgia in it. So what I try and get in my writing is the uncanny, the disturbed. When I first started this journey, mm. um, I was going to write just a little bit about what I had originally done in Italy and that sort of thing. And also as a sideline was looking at some of the people and places from the origins of the modern cabaret in Paris at the end of the 1800s. So I started writing all these different stories, looking at different characters, you know, people that weren't so well known or that were extremely well known especially when you know Lautrec bless him kind of made these amazing posters so that we're you know, they, they're recorded yeah. in time and being able to take some of these characters and, and give them a life again um, and also what I do is that with these stories I take some of the characteristics so the people I work with also have an 1800s pseudonym can can dance a pseudonym. I kind of push these two things in two different directions. So, mm. say 
for example, um, Jeanne Avril, who was one of the big stars of the time. So I take my friend Yvonne and I push some of her characters onto Jeanne Avril, like the way Yvonne would light a cigarette or maybe mannerisms. So I kind of bring those two and kind of, you know, disrupt all that as well and go, look, we can do this. And so eventually kind of having these two mashed together so I can take the 1800s stories, haunt through to the 1980s, and then the 1980s haunt through to the 21st century. Now, all being well then, what I'm doing now will haunt somebody in 5, 10, 50, 150 years time so that that, that continuation happens. Oh, I really love that out. Not so much in the work I'm doing now, but in the past, I've been really interested in hauntings, mainly like digital hauntings, this merging and this like feeding into the future, hoping that you're going to haunt the future as well. I really like that. What I also do, in fact, we were in discussion about it this morning. Writing the book, I decided that well, it has to be written chronologically. So each chapter is the town we were working in. So I found postcards, I found photos. So each chapter starts with a photo or a postcard from the town. What I am also doing is at various moments is getting a photo of some, for instance, the earthquakes in Greece. So I went out and bought a set of wooden worry beads, which I still have. So I'd taken a photo of the wooden worry beads and put it very faintly behind my my uh, my work. So there's this haunting of yeah. pictures as well, just there in the background somewhere hovering I love the idea of ghosts. I love the fact, I love the idea that we are constantly immersed with these voices and these things from our past. Um, and also trying to smash this whole kind of media spun um, film thing that ghosts are really bad things. They're all malevolent. They're not. They're part of who we are. They're part of our culture. To be able to use those, I, I love it. I think it's great. I'm comfortable with my ghosts. And I'd be bloody scared if I didn't have them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, exactly. It feels impossible that you could go through life and not have anything, any of the like what ifs, might have beens, any of that haunting you. Like that seems that seems bizarre to me as well. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's really interesting. And I'm realising now I haven't actually asked you, but why did you ultimately leave the company for the last time? We fell out. We finished... The TV series in Spain, uh, we were gigging up and down the coast. People were leaving and it got down to only a few of us left. The choreographer was going to come go back to England to audition for new dancers to then start another show in Italy. And he dumped me in Madrid with my then boyfriend, who was had been one of the cast on TV. So we'd spent the summer teaching dance, basically. And the choreographer phoned me and said, right, I want you to go and join this other company to stand in for the male dancer that needs to come back to the UK. And I said, well, I will, as long as you can give me September off, because you've promised me September off so I can go to my brother's wedding. Well, I can't have that. It's like, well, you know, I can't either. You've given, you've, you can't renege on this because it's all been arranged. I was best man. So therefore I am going back for my brother's wedding. And that was the last conversation we ever had. He literally cut me dead at that point. Eventually phoned my parents and went, can you send me some money, please, so I can come home? But with that, I always felt I was going to return to Italy one day and continue that life. So again, this is another haunting of it. So there's never been that closure. There's never been yes. that full stop. So I never said goodbye to Italy. So maybe this is my goodbye, you know. So, yeah, that was, I mean, the first time I said that, I did break down. And I'm not going to break down again because uh, there is that sense of, uh, there's a sense of loss. There's a sense of a regret's not the word. The Welsh say it brilliantly in Hiraith. 
I mean, the, the, the Welsh people I know that just all say we can't translate it, but it means a sense of loss and longing for a time that will never come again. I love it. It's a beautiful word. But there is that sense of, yeah, actually getting it out there. Perhaps that's my way of actually kind of putting the full stop in place. For such an intense experience to not have a sense of closure at the end, I can imagine is difficult, really difficult. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Because I always thought I'd go back. You know, I got coached back to the UK and, uh, yeah, ran straight back into a commercial life in London. It's it's a part of my life that is still so really fresh. Yeah, that makes sense. Even if I have embellished the stories every now and then <laughs> to make me look good. No, when it gets to 85, I became quite a little shit as an assistant choreographer and dance captain. And I kind of liked writing that. But, you know, there is this me that was kind of like shout at their dancers the whole time and tell them how crap they are and that sort of thing we had just the best the slickest show ever and you know i'm kind of dead proud of everybody for putting up with me and standing there and going yeah okay we'll do this and we'll do it for the rest of our abilities you know and um, i'd probably take a different approach now but that's another haunting isn't it yeah exactly exactly yeah related to this haunting and the queerness um you mentioned wanting to explore the isolation of gay male dancers in these touring companies in further research but I was thinking because queering conventional academic heteronormative narratives seems so important to your current work I was wondering how much of your PhD thesis gets the chance to address and delve into these kind of queer lives within cabaret history that's a really interesting question um and it's kind of I'm going to try and pick it apart a bit actually yeah and my first thing is a question straight back to you which is it would be interesting to know what people see as cabaret history if you take um, and also the queerness of things uh, for starters my i i think nowadays very much if you say the word queer it's almost immediately associated with sexuality and gender mm-hmm. yeah that it's almost a given that you go queer oh yeah all right okay we know what it's about but if you kind of go back further than that, it it's not. Can you go back to the origins of the word queer? And it's about the uncanny, it's the mysterious, it's the odd. It's and you have people that kind of you know look at it from that perspective. So it becomes about the things that are, that are at odds with the normal or the heteronormative and the dominant. Mm. Um, it's it, for anybody that actually feels marginalised. Um, bell hooks refers to it as being about the self that is at odds with everything around it and that has that has to invent and create a new place to speak and thrive and live you know so mm. it doesn't necessarily have to be about sexuality and gender yeah maybe my work one day will actually look at that for now it looks like it looks at the queering the haunting the disrupting yeah. the challenging in academia so that's that. And looking back at the history of cabaret, you, what we recognise now as cabaret, mm. which kind of bears resemblance to what was going on in Germany in the 1920s and 30s in the Weimar mm. era. Now, I know very little about that. And I've purposely not looked into that. I'm taking it that back that much further to Paris, where there is this explosion. But what there was at the time, cabaret... The word cabaret comes from uh, the Middle Dutch, and it means a cambret, meaning a room. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a venue. It was somewhere you went to, to drink, basically. So it was like a tavern, like a you know, inn. Lisa Opinionessi kind of 
says that she thinks that it has its roots in like the 1400s, you know, with the poet Villon frequenting his own cabaret. And you look into the 1700s of people like um, oh, Racine and Moliere would frequent their local cabaret. It was called Le Mouton Blanc. Um, so it was a place you went to. It was a venue you went to. And um, by the time you get to the end of the 1800s, you've got the cabarets or the cabaret artistique, which were more oral, um, you know, spoken word places. Um, but again, you know, and a lot of it likens to what's going on in the 20th and 21st centuries. In the, So you can liken those to um, open mic nights of the 21st century, where you walk in, write your name down on a list, and eventually you get called up to say, so it was a way of sharing work. Um, and if somebody got drunk, they might stand up and sing a song. Uh, but then you had the um, the cafe concerts, the cafe con, uh, which were venues that had like a small raised platform where you'd get a solo singer and a piano. Uh, and again, you can like that to the 21st century of uh, one person shows. Um, then you have the dance halls. And this is kind of where it goes. It blows my mind. Um, so... Dance halls were an integral part of Parisian life. It was your disco of the 1880s. Well, actually, no, I lie. It was your disco of the 1800s. And you'd go to your local world. You'd kind of potter down the road and go and have a dance. And stuff evolved out of that. One thing and, and one thing in particular evolved out of that was the can-can, which kind of started out life in around the 1930s. 1830s, sorry, as an improvised social dance dance predominantly by men. By the time you get to the 1880s and there's this big explosion, a lot of the art and a lot of the photos, women are in their day clothes. Yep. And if you look at fashion at that time, you're talking crinoline dresses or bustled dresses. So these women are picking up massive amounts of fabric to kick their legs up. Yeah, these are strong, feisty women. Um, but it was also, it was improvised. It was, you got to the end of, you know, what was set. And it was that last moment of going, yeah, do what the hell you like. Let's have fun. You know, kick your legs up, whatever. Show us your split knickers and, and all the rest <laughs> of it. Um, and it was slowly taken over by women because they realised that they could titillate men by it. But there was no no set. There was no, it wasn't done within a proscenium arch. This was a dance floor. You know, again, you look at the art, people are just standing around watching. It's, it's all part and parcel of the same thing. And it wasn't formally choreographed until the 1920s. So it didn't become the French Cancan. And what it, what we see now today wasn't what it was then. Um, finally, there were the music halls, an import from Britain that, um, again, had really strict rules about it because it wasn't legitimate things. So there were rules about what could be seen, what people could wear, that sort of stuff. And it, again, produced some really interesting characters. What we see now is an amalgamation of all this, and we've kind of umbrellaed it under cabaret as some form of entertainment. I'm just so interested in these spaces of like unregulated, improvised dancing and entertainment where people just come together or kind of are like thrown together and they have to, they create something in that moment. And the way you then, how you can possibly capture that later mm. on. Well, what I want to, what I want to um, reintroduce the world to is the fact that the word cabaret has evolved so much over the centuries and it will continue to evolve. What we see now might not be the same in 20 years' time. You know, it might have a different edge to it because a lot of people, when they 
look at they say the word cabaret that's well they they're either pulled straight up by Kandra and it says oh it is Weimar 1920s 30s interesting to know what goes on during the war about cabaret then because it continued you know during occupied Germany so and it was I think I might in saying predominantly gay lesbian and Jew you know so these these minority voices still stood up and went actually do you know what we will still fight against what's going on we will have our voices heard i'd like to show the world that there were these it, it was different you know the, these characters that were there as well are just fascinating you know you look at them and you think oh my god you know how why how what where why are their voices no longer heard why do we know so little about them? you know i mean that's kind of get difficult when you find that there are books that are only written in french you know so you kind of have there, there's always this translation problem some great work written um, about the time. Can Can, there's um, a woman called Claire Parfit who works at University of Chichester, whose research into the origins of that is just amazing. Actually, you know, I, I lap her work out. It rips the plaster off what I often refer to as the sanitized, deodorized, pretty look that we have of the, in the 21st century. So you look at somewhere like the Moulin Rouge, where the women have these identical costumes, like the knee length, dressed with the frills underneath, and, that's, and the boots. And, and you go, well, boots were hardly worn, for starters. If you look closely at a lot of the photographs, and especially the ones of the turn of the century of the can-can dancers of the time, they're all wearing shoes. So you can, okay, where did that come in? The, the knee-length dress, yeah, okay, some of the women were wearing costumes that were knee-length or just below knee at a time when, as I said, you know, the crin and the bustle were fashion. So they're already, they're breaking that mould. But they're also, they're not really costumes. This is day wear. It's like you're not even going home to change to go out to your local disco. You're going from wherever. You're still wearing the same thing you've worn for the last week. I'd love to be able to get some form of sensory thing in that as well. You kind of smell the unwashed armpit. No deodorant. I won't quote it to you because I can never quite remember it, but um, Rossetti wrote a sonnet to his brother having seen a cabaret. And the last two lines of it just make me roar, but they are kind of quite unrepeatable. But he was aghast at, you know, just the smell of the place and the smell of unwashed women and unwashed men. And you kind of, this is what it was. So there is this refined, prettied, Upness. The French, I think, often do it well with historical period films where they get this sense of the dirtiness within just the look of the film. You can you get that sense of the stench of it. I want to try and pull some of that into it as well, that there is this. It's not nice. I hate the word nice, but it, and that's why. So I think maybe we should, <laughs> should tie it up a bit now, even though yes. I could I could I could go on for hours anyway. So yeah, yeah. Well I could I could listen to it. I could listen to it out. But um for the sake of the podcast I guess. Lastly, yeah. <laughs> um I just wanted <laughs> I wanted to talk about archives. So um at the beginning of your paper you talk about the absence of archives relating to dancers working in cabaret in Europe. And then you talk about reaching for your diaries and photographs during lockdown. And later then you mention memorabilia and dance oral histories that you've collated. And I was wondering, do you intend on depositing this into a wider public archive? Or do you have any other plans for making sure it's preserved? I don't have as much as I wish I had right now. Um, I threw a shout out onto Facebook 18 months or so ago, uh, which got a great response. Yet, you know, and I kind of because... 
I want to finish my PhD before I start this because it's, you know, I kind of, I need to focus on what I'm doing before I kind of broaden it out. But I've done some interviews with, I've, I've stuck with the people I know so that we kind of, there's a personal link with it. But there are a bunch of people out there who have always sort of said, yeah, I worked for so-and-so. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you about stuff. I would love to leave the root, the seed of an archive that can be built on mm. somewhere. I don't know where. As I said, I approached the um, National Resource Centre for Dance. You know, they were interested, but not interested enough to it, for it to become somewhere. I would love to be able to find somewhere that says, yeah, great, let's really work on this. Let's look at, find out, and, and whether it's just whether people scan, take photos of memorabilia service or whether there becomes a physical archive of it as well we're going to leave it all behind it might as well go somewhere apart from the bin or the charity shop so if there was a place where these could be stored and looked at but it, it, it's finding the right place i mean if you know if somebody hears this and wants to give me a massive amount of money to uh, <laughs> make it my life work. but it, it is it's kind of it's one of those things that is just going to be it's my for want of a better word i want to leave it as a legacy again i'm not that keen on the word legacy it's kind of a bit too poncy but something that's there that shows all those really stupid interesting things. like for instance we every town we worked in and i need to find somebody who has one of these because i i threw mine away we used to have this thing called a sojourno now i've got no idea what that means in english but it was a piece of paper that had our photo on it and whatever town we were in we would have to present ourselves to the police station where it would be stamped yes we're working in this club and it was wherever we went one morning we'd have to stagger out of bed get to the police station and get these things stamped and signed. Having a physical copy of that would be brilliant. I have my Codice Fiscale, um, my tax book that actually shows how our tax was paid while we were over there. There's various little bits that are there that if somebody in 50, 100, 200 years time went, I want to write something about you know, I've I've read this stupid little piece by so and so that <laughs> talks about dancers that worked in these dives. You know, in Europe, not just Italy. I always say it's Italy because that was my experience of it. But you know, if there if there is things that they can actually pick up and touch and and go, oh my god, this was you know this this belonged to somebody. Mm. However long ago, or it might you know three years time, if somebody kind of calls up and goes, tell me about what it was like to work with strippers in geneva or something like that that there's all that there yes i would love there love for there to be an archive i i, I really you know, so that these voices are kept alive that that these stories are told basically what i want is just to be able to tell the story you know and have people go that is mad yeah. all those dance companies have gone i've done extensive research into the hotels the clubs that sort of thing i think i'm right in saying they have now all gone you know, i remember dancers saying to me some years ago oh my god but, and you're but you're part of our history and i was like no i am not historic i'm not ancient but you know but yeah yeah we, we are this is part of dance history and it's a dance history that really needs to be looked at that isn't conformative that isn't doesn't doesn't do the things that you know that we see in the dance world there's you know there's no famous choreographer famous dancer famous whatever it is just the ordinary hundreds of dancers doing what they love end of story really yeah does that sum it up at all <laughs> that was really really great and 
yeah, I just really appreciate you taking the time to record the paper and then to speak to me. So thank you so much. Thank you again to Al for his fantastic contribution to our life writing theme and thank you for taking the time to listen. If you'd like to get involved in creating an episode with us, please do drop us an email at the address in our bio. You can also find us on Twitter at Technocast and on Instagram at Technopodcast. Keep your eyes and ears out for our upcoming episodes and we'll see you soon.